Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Arway. And today is the last show before we take a little break for the holidays and come back in the new year. And as the last show of the year, it's a really great time to sort of look back at the trends and developments and discussions around the world of food. Um, it's been a joy to sort of discuss many of them throughout the year here at Heritage Radio Network. Um, and currently, as many of you may know, the restaurant industry is engaged in a very heavy discussion uh, around uh, some of the powerful men in the food industry and the ways that they've abused that power. I'm sure we'll continue talking about those issues well into 2018. But, um, you know, as we look back at the year, um, I got to say that one of the more interesting conversations I've seen come up is this sort of searching to identify or to understand what makes food authentic to any cuisine? Does it matter who is making it and or who it's served for? What it adheres to or doesn't? And where is there a line, or is there a line, between food that may be derivative or inspired by cuisine of another country or origin and being exploitative of that cuisine? Or even, as some have you know, brought up in many long thought pieces, culturally appropriative of that cuisine? Um, I think that those questions, however, are best being answered by a sort of really bold and extremely talented new generation of chefs 
who sort of have this no-holds-barred approach to blending influences from their own heritage and the flavors and techniques that they love in a way that may be something that we've never seen before, but is totally natural to them. So, and it doesn't, you know, stick within any boundaries of one cuisine. So I think that a chef and a book that really embodies that attitude um, is the one I'm holding right now. And it's written very thoughtfully about these questions. Um, My guest today, she's the chef and co-owner of four restaurants, three in Seattle, one in Portland, Jewel, Revelry, Revel, and one other that is somewhere else. I'm sure she can answer. Um, (laughs) Okay, so anyway, rising star chef. um, So thrilled to have her on the show. Rachel Yang, hi. Hi, how are you doing, Kathy? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. And what is the name of your other restaurant that I forgot? Yes, it's called (laughs) Trove. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, great. And I forgot to mention, your new book is called My Rice Bowl, Korean Cooking Outside the Lines. So, uh, it's, yes. it's, I really love how you sort of like lay down the gauntlet in the introduction of your book to say, you know, what exactly your perspective is on this. And um, if I may start out the discussion by reading a little bit from that intro, would you mind that? Sure. Okay, oh, not at all, please. Perfect. So, in, in, you know, describing what is Korean cooking outside the boundaries, um, you write, the food you'll see in the recipes that follow isn't Korean food. Korea is our starting point, but anyone who has walked into our restaurants looking for traditional bibimbap can tell you we do not run Korean restaurants. But our version of Korean-inspired food is itself akin to that rice bowl. Underneath everything, there's a dependable backdrop, my Korean heritage, made up of my childhood and distant food memories that are ingrained in me. It's topped off with a mosaic of flavors seasoned from my cooking experience— informed by Japan, China, France, Italy, Mexico, Spain, Thailand, Vietnam, Mongolia, and India, just to name a few. The way America is. This is the authentic food of a Korean immigrant who tried everything she could to become an American, but only became one when she realized that her culture, among many, is what America, is what makes America so delicious today. I thought that was really, that was really poignant way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. So, so, Rachel, you write this book, and you instruct people to kind of use it as a guide, but it really defines um, a very singular point of view. Um, I, I would love you to kind of, like, ex- I don't know, describe some of that. So for some people who may have not been to Jewel, um, I, I could, like, mention some of the recipes so you can get a taste of it. There's, like, shrimp and bacon dumplings with mushroom XO sauce. Um, there's broiled mackerel and green curry chimichurri spicy pork rib in a hot pot with tomato, potato, perilla. There's six different kinds of kimchi, with our, some of which are not at all, you know, something you'd find in Korea, I think. That's right. <laughs> okay. So um, something, you know, to, to know about your background is that you're very, very classically trained in French technique. Um, you studied with, I mean, you cooked under Thomas Keller at Per Se, and uh, you rose the ranks of sort of the New York fine dining scene. So how did this whole evolution of, you know, using your Korean background that it, and the flavors that are sort of ingrained from your childhood, how did that come about? How did you decide to mix and um, saute with those flavors in your current cooking? Yeah, so I came to the States when I was 15 and decided to cook after I graduated from college. Um, When I went to cooking school in New York City and then went on to uh, start cooking at uh, various restaurants, mostly French restaurants, 
um, from that, I mean, even at that point, I did not know what I wanted to cook, and mm. I did not even know that you were supposed to have your own um, flavors mm-hmm. or personalities or colors when you're cooking. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of really engulfed in basically working for these great restaurants, working for these great chefs, and just the whole artistry and the craftsmanship of actually cooking itself was, was so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until when I was given a chance to uh, be a chef at this re- uh, modern Korean restaurant and then start cooking and then realizing the reason why people are actually looking at this restaurant twice, looking at the menu twice, was because of the fact that, oh, they're doing something different. Mm-hmm. This is the, you know, we're talking about, you know, almost 12, 13 years. You know, back then, mm-hmm. you know, David Chang wasn't, no. was just quite around yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Korean food at that time, even in New York City, was fairly new and fairly only known as an ethnic restaurant. Yeah. So that's when, we real, that's when I realized, wow, people are taking an interest in what I'm doing because of the Korean food that I'm doing. And that really struck me really hard. But after that, I moved out to uh, Seattle with my husband. Um, and when we opened our restaurant, to be honest, at that point, we were just having fun. Like, you know, yeah. we were literally 29 years old, young chefs. Um, we are just being ambitious. And, you know, you're talking, when you see a lot of young chefs, you know, they want to go everywhere with their flavor. And that's exactly what we were doing. And that's when we realized you can do everything with, and as a chef and as a cook. But having a foundation, having a flavor that grounds it all, that ties it all, mm. was the, that, that what made it not just a fusion that people call, yeah. but a, something that makes it a little different because I am doing this because the fact that it still ties to Korean food. I'm doing mm-hmm. it and it still ties back to what I've been uh, eating my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that somebody like sought you out to open this uh, new, or I guess, modern Korean restaurant. Uh, was that her vision? Like to open something that had um, influences from Korean, but wasn't necessarily too strict or too stodgy, didn't, you know, adhere to these formulaic uh, Korean-American restaurant menus? Yeah, well, I mean, everything was almost an accident. So I mm-hmm. met this woman, and she was Korean-American, and she was fascinated with the restaurants in New York City and wanted to, you know, open a restaurant. And to be honest, in the beginning, um, when she and I decided to work together, I wasn't her chef. Mm. She, um, I was uh, her sort of a helper, getting make sure that you know she has everything that she needs to open a restaurant. But she was looking for an American chef who can bring this Korean flavor to um, New York City. Okay. Someone who actually has a little more experience. I mean, to be honest, at that point, I was still a line cook. I was mm. still you know learning, trying to learn everything. So it actually was came later when. She could not find um, American chef mm. who understands Korean flavor, and then turned to me like, "Hey, Rachel, okay, like we need to open a restaurant. Construction is almost over. I do not have a chef. Do <laughs> you want to do a tasting for me?" And that's literally how it started. And even and even at that point, I never cooked Korean food before. Yeah, and I was like, "I guess so. Yeah, I think I can try." And it was literally the the fact that. This is the flavor that I grew up with, yeah. that I was eating my entire life. And knowing that what comfort, like how the Korean food really hits you in your gut with all this comfort, uh, bold, big flavors, and really wanted to kind of bring that out. Mm-hmm. Basically. 
That is such a fascinating story. I love how um, she actually sort of lent you her mother to, to show you how to do some <laughs> Korean techniques. I know, I know. So when, you, when she decides, okay, Rachel's going to be the person who's going to you know, be the chef of this restaurant. We're just going to see how this works out. And her mother actually came from Korea and taught me a race of different Korean dishes, anything from kimchi to different pancakes and some side dishes. Um, yeah, from there, you know, it was something that I knew the flavor of, but never yeah. knew how they come together. And that was my crash course in Korean food. <laughs> now, did you feel a little bit strange about that? Like, you know, like, oh, I've been eating this my entire life, but I don't know how to cook it. And yet I know how to cook all these other foods really well. Did that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I grew up in a household where my parents were both working parents. Mm-hmm. Um, food was important at the same time. You know, I didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. Um, so, you, like, you know, food was something that, you know, really came to me later in my life. And we realized, like, you know, like, we, I've always thought that, you know, you have to go to a French restaurant. You have to learn how to you know, do these techniques and go through this brigade system. And that's sort of the really mm-hmm. um, epitome of, like, cooking. And then realizing, oh, there's a whole another, you know, part of cooking that talks about flavors and measuring things in different ways. Talks mm-hmm. about you're just um, sleeping this and touching this and feeling this. and But the fact that I was able to understand all that means because, like, I know what we were looking for. I know yeah. the flavor she was talking about. It wasn't about techniques and following the recipe, but it was really kind of taking the flavors out of my memory. Right. And were the te- techniques themselves like vastly different? Did you have to learn a sort um, of a new lot, language? In the a kitchen? lot of Korean cooking, um, it, it, it's not vastly different, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, the, the braisings and, you know, sauteing, it, it takes a little bit different uh, whims and different uh, different ways of looking at things yeah. so it's i mean like definitely you know the fact that we i had a french you know training background mm-hmm. was definitely helpful to be able to like understand like oh like you know we want it to be cooked to the tender and you know because those reasons to be this way how you lay your flavor like you were able to basically understand and oh like this way it can be a little more efficient this can be a little bit more better you know so that's really cool so you're taking a little bit of like the best of both worlds Almost. Right, absolutely. And do you think, I guess, you know, I have to ask this, but do you think that food tastes better when you can sort of throw away the traditional rubric of what needs to go with what from any one cuisine? Well, I think that's, always, that's a really interesting question because <laughs> that really touches up on what you talked earlier about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so there is an authentic way of, let's say, doing kimchi. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when you start incorporating your ways or, you know, what you think is better, what you think is making more easier or more efficient, like, you know, is that a better way or is that a new way of doing it? It's always very tricky because of the fact that, you know, people, there's, there, there, are very, there, there are certain items that people really are attached to and don't want changes and mm-hmm. don't want anything new. However, when you look at even kimchi per se um they are so many different kind of kimchi when you go to korea there right. you know every region has their own take on it every household have have a different uh way of putting uh putting together their different vegetables i mean there's so many different ways people had made made up variations on this one authentic concept that people think their the kimchi should be mm. and i think when we are doing it you never even question the fact that oh it's 
you know, I am making a change versus like, oh, this just makes sense at this time, yeah. at this point, and at this place. Yeah, but the, if the, if there weren't differences, then how would you say, oh, mine is better or that one is better? You know, there, of course, there's small well, differences. Yeah, right? well, that's the thing. Even I mean, I, I don't know if you because I, I see it in our restaurant all the time. Okay, so we have let's say we have ten different cooks, and I give them one single recipe to make, and they'll actually have 10 different ways or 10 different, like, the final result. Everyone's taste bud is slightly different. And it's so funny to see that, like, okay, we're all trying to make this one thing, but in the beginning, everyone, the way everyone approaches the recipe is so different. Mm -hmm. And even the fact that you get 10 different flavors from one recipe, like, how does it, what does it mean to make a variation purposefully and then make them different later? Mm. Well, I think, you know, as you said, you know, before... It, it really also comes down to your attitude or preferences. Like some people really like to stick with tradition and other people maybe find your food or whatever better by virtue of being novel and excitingly different. So there's... Yeah, I absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the fact that, you know, the way we do flavors, um, we obviously have a lot of strong Korean Asian flavor uh, references, but we have our customers from all over the place. We have right. customers from everywhere. And then when they come and taste our rice cake, it's a spicy rice cake, you know, based on Korean tteokbokki. It's spicy, chewy, crispy. It's really wonderful. And then the fact that what makes it a little bit different is we add chorizo Ooh. to the mix. You know, people often... Instead and of pork, it, it, yeah. A little bit of cumin and garlic pork sausage mm-hmm. just takes the flavor so differently. And for a lot of people who've grown up eating chorizo flavor can instantly relate to this flavor. It's not a one flavor that people are relating to versus that there's so many different avenues people can relate to the food that we're doing. And Mm. that's what makes it so much fun. And it's a twist, yeah. And I have to say, these recipes, they all look incredible. Like, the way your philosophy has manifested is amazingly delicious looking. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's awesome. Thank that you. counts too. Um, um, after a quick little commercial break, um, Rachel, I hope you won't mind if we play a little game, but that's going to be coming right up after some commercial announcement. Okay, sounds good. Great. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. 
All right, we're back chatting with Rachel Yang. She's the author of My Rice Bowl, Korean Cooking Outside the Lines. She's also the co-owner and chef, along with her husband, Safe Churchy, um, of the restaurants Jewel, Trove, Revel in Seattle, and then Revelry in Portland. And the duo has also been nominated for the James Beard Award for Best Chef four times. Um, I hope next year is your year. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds like you're due <laughs> for one of those. Um, but it's so much fun talking about um, your approach to cooking and the wonderful uh, mixes of influences seen throughout this book. Um, I wondered if you could uh, engage in a little game that I, I've devised. <laughs> um, sure, of sort of taking. Okay, okay so we're gonna, I'm going to come up with a classic, sort of well-known, beloved, age-old ages old dish and I'd love for you to sort of put your chef thinking cap on and tell me how you might tweak it to taste exciting and different and new okay awesome gotcha. okay so let's start with boeuf bourguignon this is a french stew with beef red wine mushrooms onions some bacon go yeah. Rachel oh, go I think we can <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a perfect winter comfort dish. Yeah, and I think if you kind of sort of take the flavor and then kind of take a little bit of maybe Chinese twist on it, Ooh. and then do a red braise. Mm-hmm. So red braise basically um, like based on a little bit of caramelizing your meat with a little bit of sugar, and then adding your soy sauce and a little, you know your little bit of uh, wine to deglaze everything, or, and then putting okay. some uh, uh, dry shiitake mushrooms, uh, bird dogs, and uh, lotus root, Ooh. and then kind of turning it into a really warm, hearty, but wine-based braise of beef. Okay. I think that'll be just a perfect combination to kind of take it from uh, beef bourguignon. Wow. Would you use red wine instead of like rice yeah, wine? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's, that's where cool. you, can kind of, you can kind of have fun. The fact that you can kind of see a like how one dish can have a, re- have a reference from the other yeah. dish and kind of finding a common commonality of it. And then, yeah, like, you know, how, how can I change it? So these are the two classic dishes that also use a, has a really dark, deep flavor of, you know, beef. And then you can use the braise in so many different ways and using either, you know, dark red and then a little bit of pork maybe. Because a, a lot yeah. of, like, or, or a little masala, like, you know, a lot of, like, a, the Shaoxing uh, wine that mm-hmm. you use in Chinese cooking has a, has, has a Sweet. little bit of, like, a Madeira, Madeira kind of flavor. Yeah. And I yeah, think just yeah. kind of being able to mix and match and then getting the really tough, uh, dark flavor would be a really awesome way to approach it. This is awesome. I'm totally going to scare my mom with that description of uh, adding red <laughs> wine, French wine to her like, beef stew. Hong <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, let's try the next one. Uh, fried chicken and biscuits. Oh, fried chicken and biscuits. Um, so... We've done. We have. We actually one of the recipes that's in the book is mm-hmm. our Korean style fried chicken. Cool. Um, so we do. A, it's a super crispy mm-hmm. chicken that we do a coating with some cornstarch, rice flour, and tapioca flour, and then we make this wonderful spice sauce, making mm-hmm. some fish caramel and uh, cochujang wow. and uh, wow. a little bit of anchovy and raisin. Mm. So you can make this like awesome fried chicken, and then you know the way you kind of eat it with uh, with you know with biscuits. You can and you can easily make either um, Chinese pancake, mm-hmm. and there will be actually a really wonder like Chinese uh, uh, scallion pancake, yeah. where you roll the dough, twist it up, and flatten it, um, and then just like have it all like it, that. That could be your kind of halfway of yeah. uh, chicken and waffle, chicken and biscuit, and then totally have it your way. That sounds so good. 
again, another like fun comfort food. Um, Absolutely. Different spices, though. Um, okay, now, now this one might be tough. How okay. about <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs? Spaghetti and meatballs. Um, gosh, I mean, like, there are so many awesome noodle dishes that you can do. Um, so we've always wanted to do, like, a, like meatball is actually a one way for me to describe a like dumpling yeah, texture filling. of the mm-hmm. you know filling. Mm-hmm. When I whenever we do whenever we make dumplings, whenever I teach how people how to make dumplings, just think about that you're making a meatball. Like that's yeah. the kind of consistency you're looking for. Right. Um so I think you can totally go think about your like really fun different meatballs you can make that might be, you know, just like one like one you said, like, you know, we've done we we do dumplings with um pork, bacon, and shrimp, mm. and then make it into, make into like your noodles with uh, your spaghetti sauce, and then have a little bit of maybe a shrimp paste in there to have, kind of give a little bit of funky sweetness. Funky, yeah. And then like, it will look exactly like your spaghetti and meatball, but it will have this like tiny bit of a umami, sweet, <laughs> funky flavor from the shrimp. That sounds great. Uh, and also similar <laughs> to like an anchovy, maybe a studded sauce. Absolutely, like a... yeah. Okay. No, this is good. Um, I, I love that you also write in the book. You're very sort of encouraging of using your own adaptations, sort of embracing your own twists and uh, preferences throughout this book. Totally, yeah. And do you think? I think yeah. though. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. Yeah, so I think the, the cookbooks are always a really interesting thing because people buy cookbooks to find their recipe and follow it. However, um, this cookbook is really, the, I mean, the fact that you're not buying an authentic Korean cookbook, the fact that you are buying cookbooks mm-hmm. that has a flavors and pantry items from all over the world, the whole point is for you to give them a permission, like, hey, this is how things can be mixed and used together. What do you have in your fridge? What do you have in your pantry that's from leftover spice that you bought for this? Mexican dinner that you did like three months ago. Like, what else can you do with it? And I think that's the fact that how everyone cooks. No one has a pantry that's separated, you know, on their shelf. Like, okay, this is my Middle Eastern shelf. Mm-hmm. This is my Asian shelf. This is my European shelf. Like, no, everyone no. has everything all mixed a together. A big mess uh, in my kitchen. next to <laughs> Szechuan chili. Yeah. Szechuan chili next to a, you know, um, a Northeastern, like, you no know, burble. Curry spice. leaves, yeah. Like, Every, everything is all mixed together. And the, so it's basically being able to see this flavor. And then, like, how do you cook it at home? You know, you're cook, you know, it's learning about how to cook all these flavors. And then, and then being able to see, like, okay, this is what I have in my pantry. What can, I, what can be a fun thing for me to do by mixing all these flavors together? And because mm-hmm. that's how I cook it and how that's how we cook it at our restaurants. Yeah, I think that's a very generous way of, like, you know, you know, sort of like telling your readers that, you know, you don't have to sweat it, you know, just try what you like and have fun with it. Oh, totally. It's about having fun. And I think the fact that, you know, I've been here in America for over 20 years and um, I'm married to American. My kids are, you know, half Korean, half American. Go hoppers. Um, So I'm kind of curious what what is going to be their Korean food later. I mean, the fact that do they need to, do they, I mean, they will appreciate and know what the authentic Korean food is. But what will they cook at home when mm-hmm. they grow up? I mean, it will be a not, they will, they will never be just cooking at just one authentic, you know, dishes and recipes they have to follow. They will be having all different ingredients from all their travels and all their likings. Yeah. And then they will be able to create a dish for home and for their family. And, this, and, and that's sort of how 
we like to cook it. And I think that's how a lot of people approach cooking these days anyways. Yeah. And that is a great question. What will your kids be cooking? I'm, <laughs> I'm hungry for it. What will the future of, you know, <laughs> I know all these are, mixed influences? They are five and seven-year-old boys, yeah. and they're actually so much fun cooking together. Oh. I think the fact that they've always seen us just, I mean, not, not so much at home, to be honest, but at the <laughs> restaurant, yeah, always yeah. near <laughs> fire, bet. doing stuff. And so they, they, they approach it very easy. They approach it really easily. Um, and, you know, we cook breakfast together all the time. Mm. They're, they're excellent scramble makers, uh, mm-hmm. scramble egg makers. Um, <laughs> they do pancakes really well. Uh, and then one of our really fun things that we do at home is we do, um, we get these little butane burners and put it right in the middle of the table, put a pot of stock, just like literally a chicken stock from, from the, from the store. Mm-hmm. And then just get a bunch of like mushrooms, tofu, noodles, like, beef and then we do a little hot pot like that and that's mm. such a good way for kids to just approach see like what happens right in front of them and eating it right away and they yeah. love it hot pot meals um and yeah. last but not least you know rachel this is such a wonderfully personal story of a of a chef and your evolution from very high expectations you know you're sent to america from korea by your parents to literally (laughs) study hard in high school and get into an Ivy League college and then do some other, you know, profession (laughs) that is, you know, very uh, successful. I know, I know. And you you succeeded. You got into Brown, you did it, you graduated, and then you went on to become something that perhaps they weren't expecting, (laughs) a chef in a restaurant. Um, Rachel, I have to ask, what do your parents think of it now? Do they love your restaurants or...? Are they? Oh my gosh, they are. They 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 love the restaurant. Obviously, you know it took a. It, it's been more than. Uh, it's it, it's been a long time since <laughs> I've been cooking. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, definitely in the beginning. Um, when when my parents and I discussed that I was, was going to go to cooking school after graduating from Brown, I don't think they expected me that that I would actually. Um, stay in this profession as a professional cook, I think they were like, okay, uh, you don't know what you want to do quite yet. You know, learning how to cook as a, as a, as a woman is not a bad thing. You can always get married and be a <laughs> great home, you know, housewife <laughs> and, and be able to wow. make fabulous dinners. Okay. Um, so I don't think, you know, they, they didn't think that you know, it was something that I was going to do professionally. And to be mm. honest, I, don't, I didn't know what I was getting into myself into, knowing that, okay, what kind of grueling schedule this yeah. is, what kind of hard, you know, labor, manual labor you're doing um, in the beginning. However, I think once I started cooking, especially in the professional kitchen, it was just so much fun. And, mm. you know, it takes a lot of work. So, like, I tell to a lot of people who are, st- who start to, who are starting to cook, um, just you, you need to you, you need to tough it out a little bit. Because, I mean, it's people expect to sort of, you know, go through the phase and, you know, like, okay, they decide to cook and Mm -hmm. then they're like, okay, I want to be creating recipes. I want to be, you know, throwing these dinner parties. I want to be having this, you know, I want to be a personal chef to this, like, you know, rich family. It's like everything takes a little time for you to really kind of invest in because more than anything in the long run, what you learn is this being a persistent person, resilient person in the kitchen to really survive. And, I mean, I got lucky the fact that I met my husband working in the kitchen. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that he and I are partners in everything that we do, that really helps us to be where we are. Right. But at the same same time, learning how to really 
not just how to cook, but then how to really serve people and make people happy. Mm. It is really the only way you can survive in this industry because at the end, you're not making food for yourself, but you're making food for other people. Wise words indeed. And uh, this really is an inspiring story. Uh, I can't wait to share it and tell everybody else to, to check it out. And, you know, as you were saying, you know, not too many people have, have what it takes to survive. So congrats to all your success. Thank you so much. <laughs> and congrats on this wonderful book. Um, it's about that time where we're out of time. But uh, thank you again, Rachel Yang. Check out My Rice Bowl. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks so much. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. And thanks to everyone at Heritage. Thanks for your support throughout the year to all our listeners. And we'll see you in 2018. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. That I never, 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 never had no loving like this before.